So I'm going to start off with this statement that I think many of you know it's something I'm sure I've said before, maybe not in this particular wording, but I'm sure I've said it. I'm sure many of you know it and you believe it, and yet I feel it necessary to say. And so I'll just start with this statement. For you to be 100% satisfied in life, you don't need any kind of circumstantial change. For you to be filled with joy in your life, to be satisfied, to be happy in the ultimate sense, you don't need a new career, you don't need a new house, you don't need a new person, whether that's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife or a kid. You don't need to move somewhere. You don't need to go somewhere. You don't need someone else to move away from you. You don't need a change of scenery. You don't need a car. You don't need a thing. You don't need a better anything, a better family or better friends, a better community, a better job. You don't need any of that stuff to be satisfied, to have deep joy. And I'm telling you this because I want you to know the deep joy that God has for you today instead of waiting and sitting for the false hope of some weak promised joy that the world offers. Because that's offered all the time. We see it constantly, whether it is explicit or implicit. We see it on social media. We see it in commercials. We see it in shows. We see it. We hear it in the things that our friends say. That we think it's going to come when we find that perfect, that perfect special career, that circle of friends, that, you know, not, that place where we know we're supposed to be. And sadly, many people live their entire lives waiting, sitting for that and never find it. I want, I hope for us today to realize that the best thing that ever happened to us is waiting at our door every single day. The greatest purpose and power that the world has ever known since sits in the trunk of our lives for many of us, collecting dust while we go out and, and play at the world. So we don't need a circumstantial change. That's a, that's a false hope. Now I would say that uh, what we need is a change of mindset, not a change in the outer circumstances of our lives, but a change in the inner state of our 
our mind, and our heart. And that's what we are going to look at today. What is that? How do we grab that? How do we walk in that? And so uh, if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to Philippians. We are in a series in Philippians, and we've been looking at uh, what a life that declares to live as Christ like Paul does in Philippians 1.21, what that looks like, what that values, what that pursues, what that finds joy in. And just if you do have your own Bible, I encourage you to take out your own Bible or open it up in your app. Just And as you're doing that, um, I just want to uh, quickly talk about last week, you know, Randy did a great job. You know, he, he preached on kind of opening up what we're talking about today, uh, the topic of unity in the church with respect to outsiders. And so we kind of looked at, he talked about what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel and how that actually kind of translates to being a citizen of heaven and taking pride in that, like taking pride and and really uh, enjoying and stepping into that idea rather than being a citizen for the, the for the Philippians, being a citizen of Rome, and to be less defined by our various tribes than we are by Christ. You know, to step into who we are in Christ, what it means to be part of the kingdom of God, citizens of the kingdom of God. And we're going to continue on that trajectory because Paul is going to talk about, you know, last week he talked more about unity from the outside, you know, from opposition from the outside. And then he's going to talk about more of this inner unity. What is that characterized by? What should that look like? And we're going to see that here. So uh, once again, this is Philippians 2, verse 1. Philippians 2, verse 1. And um, I should turn my own Bible real quick here. Philippians 2, 1. And it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Okay, so we'll, we'll stop there quickly. So a few things. What is kind of the mindset that we need to adopt? So quickly, I'll give you the first point here that we see in the text. We need to adopt a mindset of humble servanthood. Of humble servanthood. Now he says, so, okay, in light of being the citizens of heaven, and he lays out this... Uh, Almost fivefold if clause, any encouragement, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he points to these things. He says, you got to have this same mind. You got to have the same love. You got to be a full accord, full agreement. Right. One mind. Now, when he's when he says those things, what is he talking about? Is he talking about opinions or thoughts? 
is he saying intellectually you have to all agree you have to have all the same opinions you know like you, you know when when we apply that to today to our church what do we say does that mean we have to all be you know fans of the same team does that mean we have to like like the same foods or read the same books or have the same taste in movies or music or something like that is it is it that like no it's not that right it like that wouldn't make sense and that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying, okay, you have to think the same. Is it political opinions? Is it, you know, economic policy? Is it like that all of our platforms must perfectly line up? We all have to vote the same. No, that's not it, right? In fact, the, if you look at the Greek, the word that's used in the Greek here, a better translation might be a mindset Right? So not the same thinking per se, but it is a mindset or an attitude. He's saying you have to all agree on this attitude, to adopt this attitude, to adopt this mindset. In this, be completely united. And then what is the mindset? He says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And that can be, some of these words can be translated in different ways. More literally, it is, he talks about rivalry, and he's using, in fact, the same word that he used earlier when he talked about the rivalry, when Paul talked about the rivalry from the other preachers, right? From people who were trying to come up, from people who were trying to take advantage of him being in prison. So he's, you know, Paul's throwing a little shade at those guys, right? And he's saying, don't be motivated that way. Don't have this petty rivalry. Don't have this selfish ambition. Don't have this. And conceit also can be more like empty conceit. That is more of a, uh, captures the idea of vain glory, literally. Don't have a desire to make much of yourself. Instead, Count others more significant than yourself. And some translations have this better than yourself. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean you should think, oh, wow, that guy's better than me? Like if you are literally better at something, because we're, we're, other, you know, we're, di- we're gifted in different ways, and some people are better than other people at things. You know, like Randy is better at keyboard than I am, just straight up, obviously, it doesn't mean that I should think in my, or that Randy should think in his head, Joe is better than keyboard, you know, better at keyboard than me. That doesn't make sense, right? So it's not that we are to think of other people better than us in certain things or in skills or in abilities. No, it means that we should regard others as more worthy to be served than we are. So we should adopt this attitude we should have this mindset of humble servanthood, servitude, like I'm going to serve other people. Now, when I think of mindset, I can't, I can't help, but I have to. I have to think of Kobe. I just, I have to. I, you know, I'm trying to think of something else, but like Mamba mentality, it's, it's, it's his legacy. It's what he was about. You know, sadly, we lost Kobe this year. 
And I think about, like, when I think about mindset, right, I remember this one story, like Shaq told this story about Kobe, where he would practice uh, basketball moves without a basketball. So he would go to the court, and when, they're, when the, you know, Phil Jackson would be talking about something, he would be going over some kind of schemes. And Kobe would just be doing these moves, like practicing moves without a basketball, just practicing the moves, like the footwork and getting it right. And that was kind of, that was the thing that Kobe was most known for, more than winning, more than results, more than scoring. It was that he had this incredible work ethic, that he had this incredible mindset, right? That he would, he would decide that I'm going to have this attitude toward bat. I'm going to work harder than anyone else. You know, there's this Nike commercial that they, they posted because of Kobe's recent birthday and, you know, Mamba Day and all that stuff. And, um, like, <laughs> Randy told me about it. And there's a line in there that's like, it's like a better teacher, better preacher. And it shows a preacher in there. And it's like, you know, it's about being better, right? And it's like better father, you know, all this stuff. And it, you know, better leader, better this, better that, better generation, you know. And it goes, and it's very inspiring, right? And even the fact that it includes things like that. And, of course, at that line, you know, it makes me pause, right? You think about it because it's like that's what it means to have a mindset, to set your mind to have this attitude and say, this is what I'm going to do. This is the way I'm going to live. Right? Uh, you know, sadly, I, I heard about Chadwick Boseman. I'm sure many of you heard that he passed away. Uh, and it's crazy that it came out that he had, he's had cancer for the past four years. And he's been between movies, having surgeries and chemo. I mean, four years. Chadwick Boseman made a bunch of movies in the past four years, including most of the Marvel movies like Black Panther and Infinity War and Endgame and, you know, uh, Five Bloods and 21 Bridges and all these kind of things. Like, he's made a, a bunch of movies. And, of course, many people were thinking, wow, that's incredible to be able to do that while battling cancer, and yet nobody knew See, that's, that's mindset, right? That is saying, I'm, gonna have, I'm just going to have this mindset. And what Paul is saying is, have that kind of mindset, except not about basketball or acting, about humble servanthood. Attack servanthood with that kind of mindset. Consider others more significant than you. Put down your own selfish ambition, your own empty conceit, put that down, have that mindset, adopt it. Sadly, in the world, what we see is the opposite. Everyone is stuck right now asking the same question. Why can't people see things the way I see them? Why don't they get it? What's wrong with them? How do they not see it? How can they not understand me? Now just, we have to be honest, right? We have to be confronted by the word. If you think that, and if you don't think that, you don't think that. But if you do think that, like, you recognize how conceited that is, right? Like, if you think, oh, why can't people just think more like me? 
Why can't people just get it? What's wrong with them? Like You get how conceited that is, right? You've just made your one very limited perspective the standard by which all other people should think. That's what you're saying when you say, what's wrong with these? Why don't they see things the way I, I see it? Now, to be clear, I'm completely guilty of this and rebuked by this. But I'm still going to preach it because it's not about me. It's about what's here, what's in this word, and, and we have to be confronted by it. Paul says we have to, we have to lay that down. We got to lay that down. We have to adopt the mindset of I'm going to be a humble servant rather than asking the question, why can't people see things the way I do? I am going to have the attitude of how can I today try to see things the way other people do? Instead of, how can I get them to understand me, to get my point? I'm going to think, how can I better understand them? How can I get their point? How can I hear them? How can I help them? That's what citizens of heaven should be characterized by, a mindset of humble servanthood. Here's the second thing that we can see Paul saying, and and we'll have to, I'll explain this a little bit, but here's point two. Tie your joy to the interests of others. Tie your joy to the interest of others. Find your joy. What I mean by that is find your joy in meeting the needs of and serving the good of other people. So what Paul says in the text, right, if you look at verse 4, it says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, in your Bible, it probably, it should say, if you have ESV, let each of you look not only to his own interests. But actually, if you look at the original text, the word only is not there. So what it actually says is, let each of you look not to his own interests. So what he actually says is, don't look to your own interests. At, at, like, there is no only. Now, the only is still implied because he says also to the interests of others. So it is implied that you can look to your own interests in some way. Like, you are allowed to eat and work and live and rest, of course. You know, buy things for yourself. Like, you are allowed to look, at, look to your own interests in that way. But the force of the text is... The primary interest that should govern your life is not your own. It should be other people. We should be look like uh, the needs and the good of other people should dominate our lives. That's what we should think about. That's what we should pray about. That's what we should worry about. The interests and the, the, you know, and by the way, the interests doesn't mean like interests, like hobbies or something like that. Like the things that people are interested in, it is the good, right? The needs, the growth of other people. Now, as an Asian, okay, the way that I hear this is, Be 
the kind of person that sacrifices my joy for the sake of the joy of others. That's how I hear it. Right? As, as just an Asian person, that's the way that I naturally think, right? In this self-sacrificial kind of like martyring kind of way, like, oh, I'm just going to then, then what, what I'm hearing here, like what I think Paul is actually saying is I should not be happy. I should have no joy and I should just be suffering all the time. I should be unhappy. And just so other people could be happy, I have to just wallow in my own self-pity always and just like, oh no, whatever you want, whatever you want, whatever you want is just, that's the only thing that exists. That's the only way that I'm going to live. Because I, and maybe, you've, maybe you're like this, maybe you're not, but I, in my sinfulness, tend to set these things up as a win-lose situation. If you win, I lose. If I win, you lose, right? And so that's the way that it's set up. We can't all win. That just doesn't exist. Now, that's not what Paul is saying. He is not saying you should live a horrible life just so you can constantly be thinking about the interests of other people. In fact, if you look back a little bit in verse 2, verse 2 starts with, complete my joy. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and full accord in one mind. He says, complete my joy. Why does he put that in there? It seems odd when you read it. It's like, why all of a sudden is he talking about his own joy? Because Paul models for us how we show the worth of the gospel, namely joy in gospel unity. Like Paul, what he's saying is, and he says this throughout, right, when he talks about his deep affection, when he talks about the joy that he has, when he thinks about them, when he prays about them, how thankful he is. Why does Paul say those things? Because Paul's joy is tied to their interest. He has tied up his joy in their good, in their growth, in their life, in Christ. As they grow in Christ, Paul has real joy. Like this isn't just something Paul's saying. It's not just like a religious thing that he's saying like, oh, yes, I have this joy for you, you know, as you grow. No, this is real for Paul because this is his whole life. In fact, remember back in uh, 122 when he's like talking about it's better to die, like it's better for me to die and be with Christ. So what shall I choose? I do not know. But then why does Paul ultimately land on, but it's better for me to stay here? He says, because it's fruitful labor for me. Right? Shouldn't he say it's fruitful labor for you if I stay here? If I stay here and do things for you, it'll benefit you. But that's not what he says. He says, it's fruitful labor for me. If I stay here and do things for you, it's good for me. Because there's real joy in being able to find joy in the interests of others. If a change in circumstance is not going to lead you to joy, and that's not what you need for joy, how can you have joy? And this is the point. Tie your joy to the interest of others. So on Friday, okay, um, you know, Micah started school like two weeks ago, and then Boomi started school this past week. So we've been doing school. Like, I'm a teacher now. That's my main job, basically. I'm a homeschool teacher, and then I'm pastoring on the side. Like, that's what my life has become, essentially, because uh, it requires just so much. Like, who knew kindergarten? It was like so much work. 
I mean, just mad props to all the teachers out there because it is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. And, you know, I'm, I, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's been a crazy week. Anyway, Friday, we're doing school, you know, we're doing the normal thing in the morning, and then Micah, he asked if he could go to the park after his kind of school was over. And then we didn't really have time. Like, it would be kind of semi-mid-morning-ish. There's this little break that he has. So I was like, okay, maybe I could take them, Micah and Josiah, you know, to the park. But it didn't work out. We had to eat lunch. And then so I promised him. I was like, okay, well, I'll take you after lunch, right? Because Josiah's napping and then Boomy's still working. And I'm like, okay, I'll just take him. That would normally be like a time where I would try to get some work done. But I, I said, okay, I'll take you to the park, right? So we go to the park. On Friday, it's like 90-plus degrees, right, outside. We go to the park, and we take his, like, baseball stuff, and we're, like, playing catch. You know, he's, he's pitching to me. He's pitching to me, <laughs> you know, and I'm hitting. And it's like, for me, I'm play, I'm, it's like tennis with a baseball bat because I have to locate the ball and hit it, you know, and he's running around. And here's the thing, okay? I'd almost rather do anything, <laughs> Then go to the park with my son and play baseball in a vacuum, right? Like if, it's, if there were no such thing as vicarious joy, if there were no such thing as me being happy that he's happy, then I might almost rather do anything. Like, because like, I have to really explain this so you get it. Okay, when I'm saying that, if I were to perform the same act with a soulless robot that has the athletic ability of my five-year-old son. Like if there's a robot that is not a human and would have the barely catching, barely throwing, barely hitting ability of my son and I had the choice to play with that robot, I would not do it because it's not fun and it's hot. There is nothing enjoyable about that situation. I would much rather play with an adult stranger, right, catch, because that person can actually throw and catch. But I love doing this with my son. Why do I love doing this with my son? Because it makes him happy. The fact that it makes him happy makes me happy. The fact that he has joy in it gives me a real joy, not a fake joy. I'm not doing it the whole time thinking like, this sucks. No, I actually have fun doing it, but the actual doing is not fun. Me tossing the ball very gently or having to chase balls down is not, that act in and of itself is not fun. It's only fun to me because it's fun for him. Now, of course, because I'm a sinner, I don't always see it that way. Sometimes there's a sinful joy that I seek from him out of my own interest. Essentially, I use him. And I think about how what he does reflects on me as a father. And then I get frustrated at him. And then I get mad at him. Like, why are you doing that? Right? Because it makes me look bad. See, that's not me having joy in his joy. That's just me using him to seek my own interest. Sometimes we do that. We look to the people around us as only as a reflection of us. 
our spouses, our family, our kids, our friends, our community, our church. We think about it in a way where we use them as objects, as a reflection of us. I can do that with you. You can do that with me. Like, oh, my pastor, that's a reflection of me, of my church, of my community. And I can do that with you. Oh, my church, my people, that's a reflection of me as a pastor. Now, that's not a good way to think about it. That's a sinful way to think about it. You can do that with your spouse. Oh, my wife, my husband reflects on me, my family, my kid reflects on me, my parenting. My students reflect on me as a teacher. My patients reflect on me as a medical care professional. We can think of all of our lives that way. Now, you won't be happy if you think of life that way. My job, how it reflects on me, the things I do, my pay, my status, my social media, like how do all these things, what do they say about me? Do they exalt me? Do they make me appear a certain way? That's using everything in your life. Seeking your own interest. When ironically, and that, so in, in that sense, we want to surround ourselves, and you see this in the world a lot. People want to surround themselves with others who have money, who have clout. You know, Randy kind of talked about that last week. Who have power, political power, or power otherwise. They want to surround themselves with people who look really put together, who, who are people that you want to emulate, you want to follow. When ironically, the more broken the people around us are, the greater the testimony to the power and the work of Jesus. Remember who Jesus surrounded himself with. Did he surround himself with the most powerful, the people who had the most clout, the people who had the most wealth, the people who were the most put together? Or was he always hanging out with the most broken, the most in need? And those who were aware of their own need. Now think about that. Now when we are able, by the grace of God in Christ, to tie our joy to the interests of others, there's a far greater joy than, we, than what we experience when we pursue our own interests. There's just a lot more joy there. Right? There is this natural pettiness, this rivalry, this thing that we have, something that happens when somebody else, something good happens to somebody else. Like when they get a job, you're looking for a job and they get a job. When you're looking for a relationship and they get married. You know, when you've been trying to have a kid for years and then they have a kid on the first try. Right? You've been trying to do these things, like your family's messed up, their family always looks perfect, right? Like when there are these kinds of things, there's something that we feel inside. There is this rivalry, there is something, this pettiness, this envy that builds up in us, or this shame, or this embarrassment, or this desire to compare. And what Paul is saying is, see, Paul, he's free from all that. He's like, I don't need that because my joy is tied up in the joy of other people, in the the success, the growth of these churches, of these people, of their lives, of them knowing Jesus and them growing in joy. My joy is tied up in their joy. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, have the kind of vicarious joy that is not constrained by the desperate need for personal affirmation and glory. 
that when something happens to someone else, you don't have to think about yourself because you're actively interested, serving, working, praying, hoping for that to happen. Right? You know what that's like when your friend is getting married and you're really happy for them because you're, you're part of it. You're hoping for them. You're planning for them. You're praying for them. You're serving them. You're actually doing So that when it happens and they do it, you're happy too. You're happy for them. In many cases, we are more happy for them than we would be for ourselves. That's what Paul's saying. That's what your whole life should be about. That's the, that's the mindset, that's the attitude that we should have, that we want our joy to be tied up in the joy of other people. Tie your joy to the interest, to the good, the growth, the needs of others. Now here's last point, point three. Get deep in the indicatives. I'll explain, I'll explain what that means. Now, quickly, let's look back at, um, let's look back at verse 1. Okay, so verse 1 says, and I, I mentioned it starts with this if clause, right? If there is any encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, the question is, why does Paul put that there why does he start like that because he could just say so be of one mind right have the same mind have the same love being a full accord be of one mind in this humility he could just say that right he could just jump straight to the command but he doesn't he sandwiches this if clause in there, he, he talks about this encouragement from Christ, this comfort from love, this participation in the Spirit, this affection and sympathy. Now, why does he do that? I, now, I wanted to go through this whole clause. I don't think we're going to have time to do it. So if you have questions about, like, we could, because we could just just break down each of these and what they mean. But I think I'm already, I'm already going, it, it's, it's going to go really long. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. So sorry, Isaac, we're going to skip a bunch of those slides. But uh, what I'll say is this. Why does Paul do that? Okay, why does he even mention these things? Two things I'll say about it. One, these things, there's an interconnectedness of the vertical and the horizontal. So it's comfort, it's love, you know, it's encouragement. It's encouragement, comfort, participation. Remember that word is fellowship. It's the same word that's used earlier koinonia affection and sympathy he's saying we get these things from god and then we share them with each other okay now these things just are why does paul insert this before he gets to the command and the reason is this because paul loves to lavish us with encouraging hope forming indicatives with truths, with realities as the basis for our imperatives, our commands. So he doesn't just say, adopt this attitude, this mindset of humility, of servanthood, tie your joy to the interest. He doesn't just say that. He says, in light of these things, in light of the fact that you have this great comfort, this 
great encouragement in Christ, this great participation in the Spirit, this great affection and sympathy. These things are available to you in God. These things are things that we have that are true of us, both in our fellowship with God and in our fellowship with one another. And then finally, in, in that, those indicatives, Paul, he loops it back in verse 5 to another indicative, not necessarily about us, but just a truth. Right? He points to Jesus. He says, have this mind. Again, there's that mind, this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Again, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close soon, but just what my, <laughs> when I read this, because he's pointing to the example of Christ, right? And I think, honestly, I just think this is my Asian-ness, but this is what I think. When he points to the example of Christ, it makes me think of like, Sometimes when my kids are eating, and my grandma would, uh, my grandma, my mom, their grandma would watch them. She would like say this thing that I hated. It would be, you know, she would she would say to one of them, "Oh, look how good your brother's doing! <laughs> like, look how well your brother's eating! Oh, look at him eat so well!" Because it's such an obvious and blatant way of like shaming them into good behavior, right? Like one of them's doing something well and then she'll point that out to the other one. Like, oh, look how well he's cleaning up, right? Can, you know, and it's just this obvious way of like shaming them, right? And so I get triggered because she used to do that to me and my siblings, you know, when I was little. And so I'd be like, oh, like don't do that, right? Like why are you doing that? And I think that's just ingrained in me. It's like in my thinking, right? I know a lot of you, because a lot of you guys are Asian, I know I heard the sound of your hearts breaking from that idea, right? Like you just got triggered, right? I heard it. But like, we, we've heard that, right? And you know, oh, why can't you be more like so-and-so? You know, they got a such-and-such, you know, on their SAT, or this is their GPA, or this, you know, they're doing this, or they bought their mom, you know, a car, or they bought their mom a house, you know, something like that, right? Like, we know that kind of comparative thinking. And so when I hear, like, look at the example of Jesus and how humble he was, what I feel is this, like, guilting and shaming into humility. Like, oh, that's what I got to do. I got to be more like Jesus. But that's not Paul's appeal. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying, why can't you be more like Jesus? So our, our, our application you know, or our thought, rather, shouldn't be, why can't I be more like Jesus? That's not from God. Paul's appeal is simply this. The basis of Paul's appeal is to know the joy and the grace and the power of Christ. Look at Jesus and be in awe. Look at Jesus 
Look at what Jesus, know that he lived and died. Because here's the thing, it's not just that he was this self-sacrificial example. And so we have to follow that example. Now that's true, that's part of Paul's appeal. But here's the part that we often miss. He lived and died for your interest. He, not, not, not your interests, again, but, but your interest, your good, your growth, your life. He came for that. He humbled himself to walk on this earth for that. He was ridiculed for that. He suffered and died for your good. So that you could know his love. So that you could know his grace. The freest being in the history of beings uncoerced. He could choose to do whatever he wanted. He has all the joy of the universe. What did he choose to do? He chose to live for your interest, for your good, unto his own death. He wasn't forced. It was his joy. For the joy set before him endured the cross. He chose to sacrifice himself. That's how I know that there's joy and power and life in that choice. In tying your joy to the interests of others because God himself has chosen that. Church, so my appeal is to stop choosing a lesser joy and a lesser freedom and a lesser Christ, a lesser life outside of Christ where you are seeking joy in your own interest. If you're struggling, if you're struggling emotionally, if you're struggling physically, if you're struggling spiritually, know this. He's actively working for your good. He's actively living for your interest because that's who he is. Sometimes he's working against you for your good. Trust in him for your own good and follow in his steps so that you can know the joy and freedom of finding joy in the interest of others. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you are gracious enough and kind enough to us to at times expose our false idols, our false hopes, even our selfishness, God. If we would be tied up in self-interest and ambition and conceit would you reveal that to us God not so that we might be shamed into seeking the interests of others but so that we might be awakened to the futility of those pursuits to the futility of trying so hard to find joy in our own interests and so chase after jobs and so chase after women or men or experiences or 
a certain type of family or a certain type of community or a thing or a status. Most of us know from our inner testimony, God, that for however many years we've been alive, that's been a futile chase. Would you, God, unlock in us the mindset that comes from knowing you that there is greater joy in a humble servant heart? Just as you did not come to be served, but to serve and give your life as a ransom for many, would we recognize, would we realize, God, that that joy is available to us? Would we be open, God, to the idea that that's not a a begrudging, you know, self-martyring, self-pitying life where we tie our joy to the good of the people around us, but would we realize because of your word because of the testimony of Paul that that's real joy that's real life that's real power that's real freedom God help us to step into that Holy Spirit give us strength today right now this week every day to pursue that to live in that mindset We entrust it to you. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.